Hello again. I'm back. It took so long to put out the flag part two. I thought flag three would be right after it, but I screwed up due to some technical difficulties that were all my fault. It took me a while to salvage my recording with Ted K and get something back to you so I could close out the flag and move forward. More on what I've got planned next at the end of this podcast. But first, I want to say thank you for having patience, believing in me, and staying a listener. It means a lot, and I promise you, I will be more timely, and I've got some interesting things to share that I hope you want to be on the journey with me to discover. So, to this episode, this is part three of The Flag with Ted Kay, and it is quite a ramble. I just decided to let it roll, did some editing after I was able to salvage it, but we dig into the Black Flag, the Jolly Roger. We end up talking about Robinson Crusoe, about traveling the world, about his podcast interview with Roman Mars. It's really interesting, a little all over the place, and I just I just have to thank Ted for being so open and so humble and sharing some really interesting stuff with us. So, you ready to get started? This is Captain's Journal, Entry 6, The Flag, Part 3, and I want to welcome you to the shared ship. All right, Ted. One of the last things I wanted to talk to you about is pirates. <laughs> you know more than I do, so I don't know what I can add. <laughs> I don't, well, well, I'll, I'll just I'll go in a little bit here. You know, you told me about the Raven. I immediately downloaded the volume on um, fascinating flags of plundering pirates and profiteering privateers. Once I started as an adult to look into pirate flags, I come to quickly realize that the flag that I associate with is the Jack Rackham Jolly Roger, the skull with the two swords. And as I've started talking to people about flags, I compare him and Blackbeard. Blackbeard, great pirate, terrible brander. No one really knows his flag unless you're into, into, into certain flags. Jack Rackham, Calico Jack, great, great brander, great flag terrible pirate. I was only a pirate for two years. He's known because of the flag and he sailed with two women. You know, you and I talked about this and and you mentioned it when you talked about relatedness, especially like West Africa. The thing that has fascinated me in studying the golden age of piracy is how in the world there was this relationship of pirate flags of pirates over and over and over. And in your document, in the, in the volume, it, it, it speaks out. I believe it actually has um, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 flags. So I just, you know, I love your, you know, like you said, you're not an expert in pirate flags, but uh, of, of the process of how do you think they came about creating, I know it's simple symbolism, you know, but 
it, it's it's just interesting to me how they developed this relationship because the flag only meant something if you knew whether they granted you quarter or no quarter, and and that came down to whether you should surrender or not to that specific pirate. That's my understanding that the purpose of the pirate flag was to say to the crew of the vessel they were attacking, don't fight back and we won't kill you. If you fight back, we're going to kill you all. And it was very much a a good, good off. A, <laughs> it was it was very much a propaganda. No, it was it was very much clear messaging of logical consequences. Here's our approach to your vessel. If you fight us, we will fight you to the death. And if you don't fight us, we will let you live. That's my understanding of what that flag was for. Pirates didn't fly that flag on the high seas. They were trying to sneak around and pretend they were somebody else. So they would fly somebody else's flag until they got close. And then they'd say, aha, we're pirates. Here's our flag. Don't fight us. We just, we, we don't really care about you. We just want all the stuff on your ship. And what I find fascinating is that the flags used in other cases, the national flags were part of a whole structure of communication of these are in the flag books. This is, we've, we've created this flag. We uh, have these specifications. We manufacture them. We hand them out to all our ships. So the flag of Spain or uh, Great Britain or the Dutch flag would be well known because it's part of a whole structure of flag adoption. The pirates' flags didn't have any of that superstructure of governance. So somebody had to start out communicating to the crews of those other ships that this is what this flag means. And so somebody had to come up with it and say, you know, a black flag with a skull on it in some some symbolism of death is a pirate flag. And I would guess that word of mouth among ship's crews would have carried that message around. Somebody came up with that flag first. They probably didn't say, you know, we have this flag. If you have this flag, here's what it's going to mean. They probably just flew it once and, you know, told the survivors, here's what this flag meant, and then let them tell their colleagues when they got back to port. I, I have no idea. I'm just speculating. But the, my point is that the regular flags had one method of communication about their meaning, and the pirate flags probably had another method. From what I can tell, what you said is the best that I can say that I have read. My One of my goals with this is to dig down into that well. The whole idea of, um, of, of sailors and ships, of spinning a yarn— was that day at sea where they sewed rope, they re-sewed the sails, and they told stories. And I don't know if you ever watched Black Sails, the the show that was on Stars, but they have a just an, a powerful episode when Captain Flint has been demoted. There's been a mutiny, and he's trying to tell someone that has taken over not to fly the flag too soon. And you've got to hoist it at the right time. 
And then when he does, he kind of makes a mistake. And he said, well, now if you don't, if you don't blow up that ship, you've destroyed the value of that flag. It will no longer stand for what it stands for. So I think in closing, and I think it kind of wraps up to this, is that I think what's interesting and and for me with with what you've talked about with flags and then with the Jolly Roger flag is how a flag that was mainly flown through word of mouth in very small circles 300 years ago is such a a flag of culture as it is today. What does it speak to that musicians like Kenny Chesney to our Halloween costumes, to our kids, um, our kids' birthday parties, to our sport teams, all have mascots related to the symbolism that pirates and that flag, that really, just like you said, there wasn't a structure behind it other than a structure based on robbers and villains and murderers. It's, it's kind of fascinating that it plays such a weird role today. I think it would be very interesting to explore the evolution of the Jolly Roger flag in American popular culture. I mean, I'm thinking of NCYS illustrations of, of uh, Treasure Island. Um, Here you go. Yeah, that's exactly that's that's the exact image that I was thinking of. Um, that's you know, so that that gets us back to probably the 20s, teens or 20s. Yes. yes. Uh, um, but uh, what push back then behind that? So that's pre-Hollywood uh, depictions, perhaps. Uh, there's Hollywood depictions, of course, as well. But what's you know what's the 19th century? Where where does it appear in the 19th century? When when did that design get associated as the standard pirate flag? This is a little bit like. How did the elongated, the oblong version of the Confederate battle flag become the Confederate flag? Uh, there's a history there that has to do with Confederate veterans organizations, the Ku Klux Klan, the Dixiecrats, and so on. Uh, there's a similar story probably that that is probably not in the 18th century, but probably in the 19th century that has that flag becoming associated as the symbol of pirates. Yeah. Uh, I'm just guessing it's it's probably pre-20th century, but I don't know. I mean, I think this would be really interesting to, to trace, and pr- someone probably already has. Well, this book, I, now that you've got me, I'm looking at it. I, I, this book was on the shelf at my grandparents' house, and so about four years ago, I was went on a hunt to find a copy of it for myself, and this is a 1911 copyright version of this. Okay, so teens. Um, and, and when did Robert Louis Stevenson write it, though? Um, I think, and I would be interested in knowing whether he actually describes the flag in his text. Well, you know, that you're, you're, you're right. My, so you'll be interested in this when I have my, do my Blackbeard series, I'm going to be speaking to a person who says this book was a hit job by the King of England on <laughs> pirates, mainly because they were supporting the colonies. Right. And right. 
Okay. And and so um, it'll be a crazy ride on this, but but does DAFO describe any flags? You know, it's such a difficult book to read. <laughs> <laughs> I have I have danced on it. They it does mention flags in it. It does. Yeah, it would be interesting to know if DAFO actually described any flags. Um, the article that appeared in Raven by Robert Garon, um, I think is pretty, probably pretty well researched, even though we don't have a lot of footnotes in it, because Garon was one of the founders of NAVA back in 1967, or in the early days of, of NAVA. And he was an editor at World Book Encyclopedia. Oh, wow. So he was, this was his bread and butter, was researching stuff and documenting it. And so I'm, I, I feel confident in his scholarship, even though we didn't, don't have the documentation of it. This actually was the first um, lecture to, first presentation at an AVA meeting to receive the driver award, which is the award for the best paper presented. Um, and it was one that, uh, of the few that hadn't ever been published. And so we um, found a place to put it in our scholarly journal in that um, volume, which was number seven. So it was in the uh, early 2000s that we published that. Uh, so, and I think he presented it in the 70s. So it was like 30, um, 20 plus years later that we published it. Anyway, he was long gone when we published it and we didn't have anything but the paper itself, but I'm pretty confident in his scholarship. So he might be one of those sources that all these other books on pirates go back to. I marked up the sources on the back of this and he's he does mention Captain Charles Johnson, which I'm going to have someone that kind of blows up not blows up what he did, but that he had an ulterior motive, <laughs> especially when it comes to Blackbeard. So, but Ted, you, you, you've been so generous with your time. Um, well, I'll, I'll tell you one more fun thing about yes. Defo. Yeah. Um, Defo, of course, is best known for Robinson Crusoe. Yep. And he, he wrote the story of Robinson Crusoe based really on two different people's experiences. One was in the Caribbean um, and the other was in um, the South Pacific. And the, the Robinson Crusoe details about, about the location and the wildlife and, and such mapped onto the Caribbean. Um, the guy was marooned in the Caribbean much more than the South Pacific, but the person that he mapped it on, Alexander Selkirk, was marooned on an island um, off the coast of Chile called Juan Fernandez. It's the Juan Fernandez Archipelago, um, and it's it's about 400 nautical miles west of Valparaiso, um, yeah, in central Chile. And it's a very remote place in the world. Um, but having lived and visited in Chile, um, my wife and I uh, had an opportunity to 
travel around after going to a wedding in Chile a few years ago. And I was looking at the, the Chile guidebook and at the very end, there's Easter Island and Juan Fernandez. Um, and we'd been to Easter Island in the early 80s. And I said to her, hey, maybe we could go to Juan Fernandez. And there's like two flights in a 10 passenger plane per week. I mean, there's a village of 600 lobster fishermen and, and such. Uh, I mean, and, and it had been devastated by a, uh, a tsunami a couple of years before. It was, and it's a national, mostly a national park, but it's where Alexander Selkirk was marooned uh, for several years um, in the early 1700s. And he's, he's the one that was the model for Daniel Defoe. Wow. And he was actually voluntarily marooned. He, he was so mad at the captain, he said, put, take, put me off this ship. Um, and the captain took him at his word and put him off his ship. He immediately repented and they wouldn't take him back. Um, and so he was there until he was found, I think it was three, three, or three and a half years later. Wow. Um, anyway, that has almost nothing to do with pirates, except it's the same era as pirates. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's a Defoe story. But the, for me, the cool thing is I got to go to the largest island in the Juan Fernandez archipelago, archipelago, which is now called Robinson Crusoe Island. Wow. Well, well, it does. It, you know, in a way, it fits in. I, I know that I didn't go into too much too much of that with you, but you know, one of the reasons I started this podcast and what led me to leave my my career and start down this other path is physicality in life and adventure and travel. I have I have spoken three times in South America. I've been to Bogota, Quito, Ecuador, and Lima, Peru. To me, it was such a, a fascinating experience of, of, of meeting just amazing people and learning things that are, are culturally different than where I come from, which I think just makes me a better human being. And so I, I, I do think maps and, and exploration and um, even the, the romanticness in a weird way of being marooned there's a connectedness <laughs> to to that. Uh-huh. Uh, well, Juan, Juan Fernandez is a, a, a very interesting island. It's it's about 12 miles long. Um, there's one village, so that's where wow. people are. But there's a uh, there's a, a trail that goes up from the village to uh, the saddle in the in the the mountain or the uh, it is a mountain, uh, which is the viewpoint that Alexander Selkirk would hike up to, to, wow. to see, uh, in, in every direction off of the Island. Um, the, the airstrip, and that's all you can call it is an airstrip is on the other end of the Island. And there is no road from the airstrip to the village. Uh, there's a path you could, you could hike up to that viewpoint and then go several more miles. People do it by horse. Uh, out to the end of the island where there's this airstrip. But when you land, um, some guys meet you in a boat, and then it takes an hour and a half to go in the motorboat around the island to where the village is. It's about the, the remotest place you can, you can uh, think of. Um, and it actually reminded me of Easter Island uh, 40 years ago. Easter Island has gotten a lot more accessible, but uh, um, it's it's a pretty remote place. Anyway, let me let me end by telling you a completely different idea yeah. for those those people who enjoy travel. Yeah. 
There's a group called the Traveler's Century Club. Traveler's Century Club, you can Google it. And it's, it's, a, it's a membership organization of people who have been to 100 countries or more. Wow. So it's for the hyper-travelers. And the, the rule is you self-declare which countries you've been to, and they say, okay, you can join our club and pay, pay our dues. Uh, and they have a list of countries that uh, you, you can check off. And um, I find it very interesting because it's a traveler's-centric list rather than a political-centric list. So for them, there are about 315 countries, and I'm putting that in quotes, that qualify as separate countries for the purposes of getting to 100 so from a travel standpoint, they say we will count as a separate country extraterritorial holdings that are a certain distance from the main country. Okay. So, for example, uh, Kaliningrad is counted as separate from Russia because it's extraterritorial. It's separated by Poland, Lithuania, some, some, some piece of another country is separating that piece of Russia from the rest of Russia. So it counts as a separate place. Alaska, Hawaii, Guam, Puerto Rico, those count as separate countries when you're doing your tally for, for this. And the reason I got on this is Easter Island and Juan Fernandez and Chilean Antarctic Territory count as separate countries from Chile um, for the purposes of, of adding up how many countries you've been to. I, I, need, to, I need to do that. I'm curi- I'll be curious. Uh, I've been to South Africa um, three times and also been into Kruger and some of the other areas of that. Well, you only get to count South Africa once. That's what I thought, That's what I thought. <laughs> but, darn it. But when you, when, you go to, um, when you go to the website of the Traveler Century Club, make sure you download the list that isn't alphabetical. Okay. But is by by continent because it's a whole lot easier to find things when you're looking at it by continent. So it's the the, the countries and territories list uh, by continent. But it's really kind of fun and it's a great, especially with people who travel, yeah. it's a great conversation starter to have people go through and check off where they've been and you get to 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 talk about those things and 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 you know I, I haven't gotten to a hundred. I think I'm at about 56 or yeah. so, um, but I've got I've got all four of those Chilean oh, <laughs> Chilean ones checked off. I would too. I'll probably be disappointed at my whatever it'll end up being like 10 or 12. But well, what it does is it it also creates an opportunity to say, well, where do I want to go next? Absolutely. Well, and and in closing, I'm just curious. I don't know if you've been there. I'm a a Disney nut. Animal Kingdom is my favorite park. Do you know about the Nomad Lounge at Disney? <laughs> No, I don't. And it's um, Joe Rohde, who is the Imagineer that designed that park. It, they built the lounge to be kind of like a storyteller, adventurer's lounge. And all the art and everything are from the journals that the Imagineers took when they went to all the continents for inspiration, as well as bringing artifacts back to build Animal Kingdom. And it's, Interesting. And it's in that bar. 
as well as the ride that probably has one of the most interesting queues, which is Ex- Expedition Everest. And it's a real, it's, the queue is real artifacts, including Yeti artifacts from their trips that they were able to purchase and bring back. Oh, cool. Cool. Well, I'm, 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 a, I'm a West Coast person, so mine, mine is Disneyland itself. Um, but I've, I've got a, a, a fun sort of interesting connection. My grandfather, uh, I was born in Pasadena. And my grandfather was a prominent OBGYN in Pasadena for many years. And among his patients were the wives of the Disney artists of the 40s and 50s. Wow. The, the, the so-called grand old men of yeah. Disney, including, including Ward Kimball. Ward Kimball also went on to fame as the organizer of the Dixieland band Firehouse Five and Firehouse Five Plus Two. And they, they went around in, on an old fire truck and they wore fire hats yeah. and they, they, they were famous in the, in the 50s. But what those guys also, all of them loved was model trains. Yep. And big model. I mean, the kind where they put tracks in their backyard and they ride around on them. And that was the inspiration for Disney's uh, trains in in Disneyland in 55. Yeah. And um, Ward Kimball, uh, his wife had a baby. And as a thank you, he presented my grandfather with a caricature of my grandfather, uh, which included... Ward Kimball in the in the um, picture and Ward Kimball's wife, and the image here is the wife is out with the anesthesia. She's just delivered the baby. My grandfather, the doctor, is holding the baby out. Ward Kimball is there with a handful of cigars, and Ward Kimball is is fainting he's passing out okay. because the baby is a little locomotive oh that's funny <laughs> <laughs> do you have that now is that is that a, I, I have a photocopy of photocopy, it. Um, okay. some cousin probably has it okay but. wow well, that's, a, that's a pretty cool connection well I, I i love um i love disneyland and california adventure and i'm a big fan of epcot too which is also, too, built around countries and flags and uh-huh. and a lot of um, there's a lot of symbolism there in that with it. So, but well, in, in Disneyland, of course, has things that that uh, reflect both topics. There's small. It's a small world. It's yep. from its 1964 pavilion, but also Pirates of the Caribbean. Well, Ted, I've really enjoyed this conversation with you about flags, and I hope our listeners. I hope you all have found this as interesting as I have. And for my kindred spirits, designers all out there, I think there's something great in here for you too. There's just some amazing practical advice for designs. Yes, about flags, but they relate to so many other things. So again, I highly recommend that you check out Good Flag, Bad Flag. You can buy it on Amazon. And Ted, what's next? Can you share with us what's next for Ted K? Well, uh, there are lots of lots of cities that uh, uh, are continuing to work on their flags. One of the things that I'm considering doing is creating the same kind of guidance for flag design process that we did for flag design. 
that uh, I have lots of notes and guidance that I share with cities, but there's so many out there now doing it that I probably need to go from retail to wholesale and create some kind of document that that can guide them. Uh, So that's one of the things on the horizon. But uh, the, the other thing for me, which is fun, is I have this huge collection of flags, probably, well, three or 400 flags uh, representing mostly where I've traveled, but uh, events and institutions that I've had connections to. And during this COVID time, uh, lots of people are walking around in my neighborhood uh, because they're sheltering in place. So I've strung a a clothesline across the street from my house to a tree across the street. And every day I fly a new flag. Oh, wow. And I've got a little whiteboard in a window where I write the name of what the flag represents so people can learn about it. But my neighbors uh, tell me they really enjoy walking by and seeing what the flag of the day is. What's today's flag? Well, today's is a very interesting flag because... It's a Cuban revolutionary flag. In the history of Cuba's uh, revolution in 1953, uh, Castro led an ill-fated raid on some barracks in the uh, eastern part of Cuba. Uh, on It was the 26th of July, 1953, and uh, nearly all of them were killed. They were rounded up. Castro found a way not to get killed, but he was imprisoned. They uh, eventually exiled him to Mexico. He got his group together, chartered a boat, came around, uh, 57, I think, landed, uh, went up in the mountains. They were revolutionaries. And finally, New Year's Day, 1959, they're, they're triumphant coming into Havana. But the genesis of the Cuban Revolution was that 1953 raid on the 26th of July. So imagine a red over black horizontal tri-bar, a horizontal bi-bar, red over black, and in the white letters across the division line, so it overlaps the red and the black, 26-J-U-L-I-O. Do you have a favorite or a prize flag? What's the prize of your collection? (laughs) Um, I get asked that question often, and the flip response is the most recent flag that I've acquired. Got it. Um, But uh, the most expensive flag is the Icelandic flag. The the cost of living in Iceland is just enormous, and it's the most I ever paid for a flag. It was like $145 for an Icelandic flag. Um, So that's the, the most expensive I think what's important, an important aspect of my flags for me is the stories of finding them, because with the dual requirements that I've imposed on my collection, that the, I have to have been to the place and the flag has to come from that place, that means when we visit a place, I'm on the hunt for the flag. And we found flags in the most interesting places not every place has a flag store. It might be a sporting goods store or a hardware store or a ship's chandlery or religious objects or um, outside of Salzburg, it was a nail salon that also sold flags, but also a fabric store. Uh, 
in, in La Paz, in Bolivia, uh, after an hour and a half of driving around with a cab driver trying to find you know, friends who could tell him where to buy a flag, we finally were directed by a couple people to a fabric store. And I said, I don't want the fabric. I, 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 want, I want a flag. And they said, no, no, that's the place to go. So I walked in. It was an old-style fabric store, you know, with bolts of fabric up yeah. in, the, in, the, in the walls and the, and the big counter with the, with, the, with the rulers on them so you could measure out the fabric. And Bolivia has a, has a three-striped flag of uh, red, yellow, and green. Um, it's, it's, it's just the, the civil flag. is just a plain, plain flag like that. So I go in. I speak Spanish. So I go in and I, I said... I, I'd like, I'm looking around at this flag, at this fabric store, and I say, I'd, I'd like to buy a flag. And the person says, how much flag do you want? <laughs> oh, God, that's great. And I said, I, I, don't you mean how many flags I want? They said, no, how much flag do you want? And she turns around and pulls this bolt of fabric down, which is actually three stripes sewn together, and pulls out the red, yellow, and green stripes and says, how much flag do you want? Oh, jeez, that's I said, awesome. Because <laughs> they sell it for bunting and things like that. So I said, I, I, I just need one flag. And they said, Do, would you like us to sew it up for you? I said, please. And so they, uh, uh, I, I said, one, one flag's worth. And so they... They measured out one flag's worth and said, come back in half an hour. We'll have hemmed it for you. And that's how I got my flag in, in Bolivia. You just made me realize I, my wife and I went to Hawaii two years ago, went to the Big Island, and there was a um, protest um, of Islanders with their, I believe, the flag before they became a state. Or, well, is that there's is more history that? with but with the multiple stripes on it yes. and the symbol in the middle. Yes. Yeah. Is, uh-huh. is that a are they are, are they trying to get that back to that? Do you know if there's a battle there with that flag going on? Well, that flag represents the battle of independence for Hawaii or more autonomy for Native Hawaiians. Okay. The flag itself is a recent a recent creation that's got a you know a false backstory. Um, but it's probably not an old flag, um, but it's got old symbolism on it. Okay. It's probably very recent, but you do see it all over on the big Island. I've seen it on Kauai. I've seen it on Oahu and, uh, my guess is other islands as well. Mm. Um, but actually the current flag of the state of Hawaii was the flag of the, and that's the red, white, and blue stripes with a Union Jack in the corner. That flag was the flag of the territory of Hawaii. And that flag was the flag of the kingdom of Hawaii. Hmm. Going back to Kamehameha III, you know, the British gave him some symbolism and he said, I kind of like making the flag this way. And the nine stripes were supposed to represent the nine islands of Hawaii, depending on how you count. Um, so that flag of the current, the, the state's current flag is actually a historical flag that goes back to the 1820s or the 1840s. I'm not remembering correctly. Okay. So, um, it's not one flag before the other, but they represent opposing, opposing, opposing viewpoints. Interesting. Well, I I was, well, that's a, that's another day, another story, I guess. (laughs) Well, I'm happy to come back when you, when you get to Hawaii's flags. Okay. 
Well, I really appreciate your time, and thank you so much for talking flags on a Sunday. Thank you. Well, let me know if you need anything else. Uh, this is audio, so you don't need illustrations. But uh, if you need any fact-checking or anything re-recorded, let me know. Let me tell you one, one anecdote about uh, Roman Mars's TED Talk. Uh, you've listened to it, of course. Yes, yes. So Roman Mars, his number six episode was an, was an interview with me about the Chicago flag and the San Francisco flag because he just moved from Chicago to the San Francisco Bay Area and he was struck by the difference of the flags. So he got me to talk, talk about it. Then um, his podcast took off. He became, you know, rich and famous. He did episode number 140 with me about the Portland city flag. Okay. Um, the first episode was done. He just called me up and, you know, it was that phone audio quality. Yeah. The second one, he flew to Portland and had his digital microphone and recorder and sat in my living room and recorded me. When he got to the point of doing his TED Talk, which is mostly sound bites, uh, him talking and sound bites from his interview with me, Actually, it was his interviews with me. The audio didn't, the audio quality was inconsistent because the interview of me on the phone was one level and the digital in my living room was another. So he flew back to Portland with the transcript of my original interview with him. Oh, gosh, I had no And idea. had me re-record the lines in my living room with the same equipment that I'd done the second interview with him with. And I'll tell you, it's really hard to match those oh, spontaneous, spontaneous lines. But thank goodness we weren't trying to match video with it. But <laughs> you, you were becoming a voiceover. A vo a voiceover yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But anyway, I'm telling you that anecdote just because it's, it's, <laughs> it, it relates to what your challenges are right now. Well, it's a, it, it, this is a, you know, this, it's, it's not as easy, as easy as I thought it was. Um, but, you know, we, we, you just had a couple little internet things, but everything looks like it sounds great. So I'm going to dig in and man, I'm just, I'm just super excited so much. Thank you. Thank you, Ted. Good, good. Happy to help Gino. And uh, by the way, Hugh Weber's effort. Yes is a pre-Roman Mars TED Talk effort mm. that his effort started before the TED Talk. It was after his podcasts. So he had his podcasts um, about the Chicago, San Francisco, and Portland flag. But it was, hey, here's some interesting thing. And Hugh basically was an early adopter in this. So he gets a lot of points. That's awesome. Well, he's a big fan and... He, um, I, I think I told you, Hugh and I are collaborating, and he's a dear friend of mine. So um, he'll be excited. He said the, he wants to listen to this before it goes live. So, yeah. <laughs> so I'm glad you said that about him. So good. Have a great one, and thank you so much. Okay. Happy, happy to help. Thanks, Ted. Talk to you later. Bye bye. Well, I told you that was going to be a rambling conversation. I hope you found it interesting and found some value for your own journey. Ah. Well, how are you doing? It's the last Sunday of November 2020. 
I started the SHIP podcast at the beginning of the pandemic. And it's not any better out there, pirates. I'd be lying if I didn't tell you it's a struggle to keep my head up. I do my work, try to stay healthy, be there for others that, that need me. And again, I say all this um, speaking for myself, but probably speaking for a lot of you. I have some big changes that I'll be announcing soon. Some really exciting news that I can't wait to share and that will affect the ship. But we'll talk about that a little bit more next time. Speaking of next time, I'm excited to have Hugh Weber join me to talk the crew. Hugh and I will talk community, and I'm going to ask Hugh to share some of his community processes. They're fantastic. Well, this is a wrap. This shared ship, the flag part three. This is your captain, Gino Church. And until next time, stay safe out there, pirates. Let's keep exploring. Let's keep fighting for each other. And remember that you can be a pirate for good.